Hello and welcome back to the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and we're very thankful to have you on board with us today. This episode is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If you haven't been to ChristianResearcher.com, you need to go over and check that out. We have a bookstore online there where we stock a lot of the books that we review and discuss in this podcast. You'll also find a page that has some really helpful quotes. There's a bunch of audio files, video files that are free for download. A whole lot of really good source material on that website, as well as links to other good sources as well. Today what I want to do is kind of take a step back from where we've been going in previous episodes. If you've been following along, we did some uh, book reviews in the book of Revelation. We also did a full review of Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. What I want to do today is start out by discussing some more reading tips. We've discussed reading tips in the past. I have a couple more to throw at you. And then we're going to discuss kind of my general reading schedule right now, some books that I'm going through that's maybe of interest to some of you. First, let's get started with discussing some reading tips. A while back I did an episode called Don't Waste Your Money where we provide a lot of helpful reading tips to help assess books to see if it was going to be a good and helpful book or to just avoid it altogether. To that I want to append a few things. We've got some feedback from some of our listeners and it prompted some other thoughts that I want to share with you regarding bibliographies and footnotes. A good writer will always quote both the sources that agree with him and disagree with him in their footnotes and bibliography and that's really helpful. So. As you are recommended books, say you don't have any reading background whatsoever, and so a faithful brother recommends to use some good reading material, you get that book and you begin reading through it. Pay attention to the footnotes, and on the correct points, pay attention to the authors that he quotes from, and when he points out a bad position, note the authors who take that position, and start building a memory bank, if you will, of good and bad authors based off of a safe source. Footnotes and bibliographies really tell you three things about an author. First of all, it tells you, is the author being fair in his presentation of his material? Is he fairly representing his opponents? Is he fairly representing his material? Number two, it tells you whether the author is ethical or not. Is he telling you where he learned his material from? Because no writer has come up with every single piece of information that they're writing down their page. They've learned it from someone, and so are they giving credit to those authors that they learned it from so that you can look them up and learn further from them and chase down some of the rabbits, if you will. Number three, it tells you if the author has done his homework and researched his material well. A well-researched book has tons of footnotes, has tons of reference material because they have scoured far and wide to gather up all the information they could find and present it fairly and ethically to their readers. So those are some things to keep in mind. One of the things that I've discovered in reading footnotes is that a lot of times there are different groups of writers who kind of all band together, if you will. For instance, a lot of Church of Christ writers all quote from the same basic sources of material. They're all quoting from Albert Barnes, Matthew Henry, Adam Clark, other Church of Christ writers. 
and they do not interact very well with conservative, evangelical, or Reformed scholars. In the same sense, Reformed scholars don't interact with Church of Christ scholars. And what you end up having is you have two sets of commentators, if you will, that never interact with one another, and they're commenting on the same materials. Here, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. A while back, I was studying the Gospel of Matthew, and as I was studying along, I came across R.T. Francis' commentary, which is part of the New International Commentary on the New Testament, And he's very conservative scholar, had some really, really good material, but as I began looking through the Church of Christ material I had, they didn't reference France at all. And as I started looking at France's bibliography and footnotes, he didn't reference any Church of Christ writers at all. And what I began to soon discover was that there are two groups of commentators who come from a conservative background who both have good material but haven't interacted with the other group. And so what happens is you have one group that is strong in a certain area and weak in another, and the other group is weak in a certain area but strong in another area. And when you put the two groups together, you have your strengths and your weaknesses covered, but you wouldn't know that the other group existed by simply looking at their bibliographies and footnotes. And so this is an encouragement if you're going to do research, if you're going to write, to cast a very wide net a look at people who you agree with and people who you don't agree with so that you can learn and you can learn to interact with other positions that are contrary to yours so you can give a fair and an honest answer of them. A good author will quote guys he agrees with and that he disagrees with. And that's really helpful. That's how you find some good source material. I'll give you a couple examples of how this works. A while back, a gentleman gave me a book called Kingdom Come, which is a discussion of the legacy of David Lipscomb and James A. Harding. It was written by John Mark Hicks and Bobby Valentine. I didn't know at the time that I read that book that Hicks and Valentine are not guys that I would recommend at all, but I picked them up for the first time, and I'm reading, and it had a chapter on the Holy Spirit. And as I started reading about the Holy Spirit, they were critiquing positions that were opposed to a literal indwelling position. And one of the authors that they kept criticizing over and over again was an author by the name of J.C. Holloway. And apparently back in the day, Harding and Holloway had a lot of debates or uh, written discussion back and forth concerning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as these authors were quoting from Holloway, every time I read a quotation from Holloway, I thought, hmm, this sounds pretty good. Ah, that's, that sounds like what I believe. And the more they quoted Holloway, the more I liked him, and I realized that I shared Holloway's position rather than Harding's position. So based on what I had read there, I dug around and I finally found a copy of Holloway's book, which was quite difficult to do at the time. In fact, uh, Brother Alan Bonifay let me borrow his copy. I made a copy of it, and subsequently we published a reprint of that book. It's called The Spirit and the Word by J.C. Holloway, and it's available on our website. Again, that's The Spirit and the Word by J.C. Holloway. It's available at ChristianResearcher.com. Now, I would have never found or known about Holloway's material had I not read and paid attention to footnotes that were included in Hicks and Valentine's book. So even though I disagree with the background of both those gentlemen and a lot of the positions they take, they did point me in the right direction of some good material because they were being fair in their presentation. Uh, An example of what not to do in writing a commentary is R.C. Foster's Life of Christ. Now, The Life of Christ by Foster, it's a really interesting read. It's an enjoyable read. I can say that I've learned quite a bit from it, but the frustrating thing about Foster is he uses absolutely no footnotes. And you just have to take him at his word that this is the position of somebody or that this is uh, truly a valid 
uh, position. You, you can't go and look up his source material. You can't consider the original source of it. You just have to kind of take him at his word. That is a very, very frustrating way to read a book. It would have been so much more beneficial if he had included some footnotes and source material in his bibliography, but alas, you're left wanting. Uh, another book that I've found helpful was called What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About by Jason DeRucci. Again, that's What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About by Jason DeRucci. This book is also available at ChristianResearcher.com. And in the future, in the near future, we're going to do a few, full review of this book. But what it's doing basically is it's giving you a big picture view of each of the books of the Old Testament, and it introduces you to the Tanakh arrangement of the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Tanakh arrangement, then you need to tune back in whenever we do a full review of this book. But one of the things I really enjoyed from DeRucci's book is he had assigned out different chapters to different authors, and each author gave you a list of further reading material. And from their list of extra reading material, I found a lot of really good source material that helped me build my library and uh, give some recommendations to folks like our listeners today. So those are some, some thoughts to keep in mind whenever you're reading a book regarding bibliographies and footnotes and their importance and why you shouldn't just blow over them or not read the footnotes. Pay attention to everything that's being placed in front of you. Okay, we're going to switch gears now, and we're going to talk about some of my daily reading that I've been involved in. And I'll start off by talking about some of my reading groups. I've talked about reading groups in the past. What I do on a weekly basis, I have several different groups going where I give out assigned reading material uh, the people that have agreed to participate in the group, they do the reading, we get together in a video conference, and we discuss the pros and cons of what we have been studying. Uh, recently, I began a new group in which we're reading J.P. Moreland's book, Love Your God With All Your Mind. Again, that's J.P. Moreland, and it's Love Your God With All Your Mind. This is the third time I've read this book in about three years. And that tells you I'm pretty high up on this book, and at some point in the near future, we're going to do a f full review of this book as well. What he's essentially doing is he is encouraging his readers, especially young people, college students, to begin thinking critically about the Bible, to apply themselves and their dedication and their routines to studying the Bible in the same way that they study at college. You know, when you go to college and you start studying uh, economics or you start studying architecture or whatever field you're going into, you're given a lot of work. You're expected to do the work, to act like an adult, think like an adult, be prepared, do work that you don't enjoy so that you can benefit from it down the road. And he's trying to encourage his readers to take that same mentality into studying the Word of God. Studying the Bible is not easy. It's not always fun. Some of it's kind of boring. Uh, some of the books that you're going to need to read to get a better grasp of things, sometimes it's going to be difficult to get through those works. But it is worth the work. And he's saying, think like an adult, act like an adult, do the work that's necessary to gain more knowledge of God and his word so that you can serve him better and give him the glory which he deserves. We'll talk more about that when we do a full review, but really enjoying that study right now. And it's, it's been about a year and a half since I read this material the last time, so it's kind of fresh all over again. Really enjoyable stuff. Uh, Brother Brad Shockley put me onto that book, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, another book that I'm reading we're just getting rolling with is A Handbook to the New Testament Use of the Old Testament by G.K. Beale. Again, that's The Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament by G.K. Beale. Uh, some of you may be familiar, he wrote a really large commentary, and when I say wrote, he was the editor on a large commentary called A Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. 
And what he did was he assigned out different books of the New Testament to different authors, and they wrote with a primary focus being the Old Testament passages that are quoted and alluded to or echoed in the New Testament writings, and trying to interact with the purpose of those connections. So in other words, if you're going to study the Gospel of Matthew, you start reading in the Matthew section, and they start showing you everywhere where there's an Old Testament quotation or allusion being made in Matthew's Gospel, and the significance of that passage and the argument at large that's being built. So as he compiled this commentary with all different kind of writers contributing to it, he wrote a hermeneutic or a book on the rules of interpretation of how the New Testament utilizes Old Testament material. And he put that together and published it in the Handbook to the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. So essentially what we have in the Handbook to the New Testament Use of the Old Testament is a hermeneutic on how the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament. I found it quite helpful in the past, really looking forward to going through this with a group of guys. And again, whenever we get through with it, I'll give you a full assessment of how it's gone. In my Monday night studies, I'm doing a discussion of From Paradise to the Promised Land by T. Desmond Alexander that we've discussed in the past. I'm enjoying that. He's had a few hang-ups, one of which is that he doesn't really fully understand the concept of covenants. He recognizes when a covenant's being given, but when he sees an expansion of the covenant or a further development, he often thinks that there are uh, there's a separate or an additional covenant being established rather than merely an expansion of the original covenant. So I've, I found that a little bit problematic, but all in all, I'm still enjoying the book, and when we get through with that, I'll give a full review of it as well. So that's what I have going on in my reading groups right now, and we'll give you some updates whenever we get closer to the end of those groups. I want to share with you now some material that I've found helpful in studying the books of Second Samuel and First Chronicles. You know, whenever we study the Gospels in the New Testament, we often study the Gospels as a harmony. In other words, you look at the three synoptic accounts, and then you include John wherever it's helpful in the material, and you see how the same story is told in three or four different ways and how it all harmonizes together. We have some of the ability to do that in the Old Testament as well, especially between Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And what's difficult sometimes is that a single episode is told, it's told for two different purposes, and it makes it kind of difficult to harmonize and sync all of the events together. And so what you have to do, first of all, is you have to go to the passage, for instance, under consideration right now, I'm studying 2 Samuel 24, which is retold in 1 Chronicles 21, which is where you have David taking a census of the people. Now, in 2 Samuel, this scene comes as the very last scene in the entire two-volume set. And the author wants you to leave the story of David with this census in the forefront of your mind. That's not where it appeared chronologically, but it's where the author wanted to leave you. He's placing it there on purpose. However, when you go to 1 Chronicles 21 and you're reading this scene, it's in the discussion of the building of the temp temple and the provisions that David is making for the temple. And so the settings where the census occurs in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 is radically different scenes, if you will. They are serving two different purposes, but it's a an account of the same events. So when you do when you recognize that both accounts are written for two different purposes, it's important to try to keep that in mind as you harmonize all of the material and try to figure out what all's going on in the big picture of things. This makes it difficult when you're trying to, to teach if you're going to teach a harmony or if you're going to teach just one account from Second Samuel twenty four and then uh, a second sermon from First Chronicles 21, it, it's a bit of a difficulty and a challenge to get through. But anyway, in, in dealing with those passages in particular, 
I've come across some material that I thought was quite helpful. In discussing the First Chronicles 21 passage, which is where I began in my studies, I found a, a commentary on First and Second Chronicles by Richard L. Pratt. It's part of the Mentor Commentary series, and I've not interacted with the Mentor Commentary series a lot up to this point, but in doing some research on First Chronicles, I discovered that Pratt's commentary was highly recommended. He's coming from a full inspiration of the Scriptures background. Uh, he's coming from a very conservative background, though it is a Reformed background as well. Some of the strengths of his commentary is that he's focused on narrative criticism, he's concerned about how the story is being told, and he is also focused a lot on the structure of the material. In his commentary on 1 Chronicles 21, he did a good job of filling in some of the blanks, if you will, that are missing from 2 Samuel 24's account. He, he did roughly harmonize the two accounts together, but he gave some material that was extremely helpful of understanding what's going on in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So I'm looking forward to dealing with this commentary more in the future, and it's one that uh, may be well worth checking out. And studying the 2nd Samuel 24 aspect of the census scene, I found two books that were quite helpful. The first was a commentary on 2nd Samuel by Del Ralph Davis. That's part of the Focus on the Bible commentary series. Again, that is 2 Samuel by Del Ralph Davis. The way I found Davis's commentary was uh, the book I talked about earlier, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About by Jason DeRucci. As I was reading through DeRucci's book, each writer at the end of whatever book they were writing about, they gave a list of further reading. And from the point of Joshua on through 2 Kings, every author in that book referenced um, Del Ralph Davis. And when you have that many different authors from different backgrounds referencing the same author, maybe that's somebody that I need to pay attention to and get. And so I've gotten uh, Del Ralph Davis's commentaries, and I've been very pleased with it. I always learn something when I pick him up. He's easy to read, yet he has some uh, food for thought. It's not just fluff and no substance. There's quite a bit of substance there, though it is enjoyable. He's kind of like a denominational version of James E. Smith, if you will. I really enjoy reading Smith. He's he's easy to read. He's enjoyable. And you always learn something when you pick Smith up. And that's kind of how Del Ralph Davis is. And he was quite helpful in Second Samuel 24. He, he gives you a chiastic structure of what's going on that I think is helpful. And he points out some some of the differences between the Samuel account and the Chronicles account. Another book that I picked up and found really helpful, maybe the most helpful in particular, was um, Exalting Jesus in First and Second Samuel by Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer. Again, that is Exalting Jesus in First and Second Samuel by Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer. This is part of the Christ-Centered Exposition Commentary series on the Old Testament. And what they're doing is they're trying to show how each of the books of the Old Testament are forward-looking to Christ. And they had some particular... Uh, application-driven teaching in this volume that I thought was quite applicable in the Second Samuel 24 scene and it's going to be really helpful in putting my sermon together. I've dealt with a couple of volumes in this uh, Christ-Centered Exposition commentary series and, and not of all of them have been helpful, but this particular one was quite helpful in Second Samuel 24. So uh, I'm looking forward to kind of taking all this research that I'm doing and combining it together and, and preaching it here at my home congregation in Indianapolis pretty soon. And when I do, maybe I'll give a, a reference or a link to where you can go check that out if you want to on our congregational website. Our congregational website is ndchurchofchrist.com. On Wednesday nights at church, uh, not every Wednesday night, about every other Wednesday night, I'm doing a teaching series in the book of 1 Corinthians. 
And I want to point out a, a writer that I found quite helpful and one that I have found not so helpful. Maybe to, to be aware of, maybe don't waste your money on, so to speak. Uh, the first author, who I think is pretty good, is Kenneth E. Bailey. And he wrote a book called Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes. And when you hear that title, you don't immediately think, oh, this is a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I don't know exactly why he titled it that way, but that's his title, and it is a commentary on 1 Corinthians as a whole. Uh, Kenneth E. Bailey is a unique individual. He lived in the Middle East for 40 years, and he taught the Bible in Hebrew and Aramaic uh, for 40 years over there. And so he has a little bit of a different perspective on some passages because he's coming from a Middle Eastern culture background, if you will, and interacting with a different set of manuscripts. So it's all often very interesting to see his approach. But one of the things that he's really good on is structure. He has been extremely helpful in structure. Now, sometimes he presents what I believe is a proper structure, but a wrong interpretation based on that structure or a misapplication. But even when he's wrong in his application or his overall commentary, his structure material has been invaluable in my studies. I've really appreciated that, and I've learned a lot from his from his commentary thoughts as well. One commentary I was excited to get a hold of, but have been quite disappointed in actually, is the Tyndale Commentary on 1 Corinthians written by Thomas Schreiner. Again, that's the Tyndale Commentary on 1 Corinthians by Thomas Schreiner. Uh, at first, it was kind of uh, more bad, more good than bad, but as I went along... I just got to where I was not convinced in most of what he was writing. I've just kind of put the book down. He has quite a bit of Calvinism that comes up in his writing. He has a different view of the Holy Spirit. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he presents the natural man as being the unregenerate, unsaved person who needs a direct operation of the Holy Spirit to work upon them so that they can understand the Word of God. And only a spiritual person that is a Christian with a direct, direct operation of the Holy Spirit can understand the Bible. I reject that position entirely. That's nothing but Calvinism, it's false doctrine, and it was not helpful at all. Uh, that would be one thing, because a lot of people take that position, but the second thing that kind of broke the camel's back, if you will, is his discussion of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, I found almost entirely worthless. He goes to great lengths to try to argue that 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is not parallel to Romans 14. He claims that Romans 14 is dealing with a Jewish exclusive audience, whereas 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 is dealing with a Gentile exclusive audience, and that's just wrong. Uh, both Romans and Corinthians are dealing with a mixed audience of both Jews and Gentiles, and when you make it exclusive to one or the other, you miss the interaction and the overlap of the two passages that are there by divine inspiration, and you miss further the entire context of both books. So for that reason, I just kind of cast him to the side, and I, have, I haven't been reading him anymore. I found him more problematic than helpful, to say the least. I'll share with you two other books real quick that I've been reading. Um, one is called Equal Yet Different by Alexander Strock. My brother Michael Bolton wrote me and asked me to review this book, and so I'm working on reading through that material right now. I've gotten sidetracked a little bit, but I'm hopefully going to finish that up soon and do a full review of that book. I found it very helpful. It's about the gender roles and the, the issues that come with recognizing or not failing to recognize the gender distinctions that God placed in creation from the very beginning. I hope that uh, this will be a book that can get into the hands of many of our people shortly. And like I said, Lord willing, soon we'll have a full review of that going on. Another book I want to share with you real quick is called St. John. And the subtitle is A Series of Exegetical Homiletical Text Studies, and it's written by R.C.H. Linsky. 
Now, a lot of people are familiar with Linsky, but few would be familiar with this book. In fact, this is almost an impossible book to find. I was rearranging my library here recently, and I found this book in it. Uh, I'd forgot that I owned it, and I picked it up and started just flipping through to see you know, kind of what material he covered in it. And he has a chapter, or a sermon, I should say, on the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, Linsky is an amillennialist. I know this. This is one of the writers that Dad had recommended when we did the books on Revelation uh, reviews. And so I sat down and I read Linsky on this one chapter, The Thousand-Year Reign of Christ. It was kind of a short chapter. It's easy to read. I thought it was super powerful. I thought he did a fantastic job discussing uh, the problems of premillennialism and presenting what is the truth in the passage in, in Revelation 20 in particular. Revelation 20 is the hotbed or the seedbed of pre dispensational premillennialism and even historic premillennialism. They try to go there and see their millennial doctrine and then read it backwards into the rest of the Bible. And so Linsky is going to that passage and he's attacking it head on to take that argument away from premillennialists. I think he did an outstanding job. I'm hopeful to get this material reprinted in the near future. And if and when we do that, we will post that on our website so that you can go and either download it or purchase copies of it. Those are the things that I want to talk to you about today. Share with you some of our my reading that I have going on that I, in our reading groups and to discuss some of those reading tips. I hope you found this material helpful. If you have, uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. Share the podcast with your friends so that we can build our, our listening audience and more people can find out about the program. We appreciate you listening in. Hope this material is helpful. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions, feel free to send them to us at christianresearcher at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to take a look at those and try to get back with you. Thanks, have a great day, and catch you next week, Lord willing. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.